Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 740th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson with Urban Farm, and I am here with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. Oh, hello, Greg, and uh, welcome everybody for tuning in again. It's yeah. always an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. Bill and I have known each other for oh, almost two decades now, and he is one of the premier seed educators in the world, I'm going to say. And uh, yeah, I know you're modest, but... Uh, well, we're in real trouble. If I... <laughs> no, no I, said, I said one of them, so... Yeah, yeah. No, we need huge numbers. For sure. Yeah. And we get together once a month to do our seed chats. They're recorded and then they go on the Urban Farm podcast. So we will be answering questions in the Q&A. Oh, guess what, Bill? Our one-year anniversary moving from Phoenix to Asheville, North Carolina happens this Saturday, April 22nd. I know we've been here a year or so. Wow. Well, that'll get you started learning your yard. You have to be there a year before you even understand what's going on. Exactly. Exactly. That's one I've said that for years, spend at least a year in a space before you make any major changes. And I think we made our first major change about a month ago when I put up a fence. Hmm. So you still have greenhouses planned? We still have a greenhouse plan, but who knows when that's going to happen. And a rice paddy? And a rice paddy down the hill. I was just looking at it this morning. It's the Drylands rice, though. So why don't you actually, let's start there, and then we'll talk about companion planting. You had sent me something called a Grex, and apparently we're talking about Grexing next month in our seed chat, but you had sent me something called a Grex of upland rice with about 80 varieties on it. Can you just give us like a two-minute description of what that is? What I just said? Yeah, we'll get way more into this in our next chat, it sounds like. So this is kind of a tee up. Upland rice is the kind of rice you can grow in a garden. You don't need a rice paddy. Mm -hmm. Turns out that the varieties of rice they grow on rice paddies were developed 
to grow on water, not because it grows any better rice, but it keeps the weeds down. Nothing else will grow. Mm. And so in Asian countries where are the, you know, weeds are the big problem with so much moisture, 200 rain, inches of rainfall a year, they favor those sorts of varieties. But where we live in a drier, arid North America, temperate climate, the upland varieties that just grow in regular soil are the ones that work well. And we know how to grow in soil. So that's the kind of varieties that we like. And then one of the gentlemen that we ran across in our heritage grain trials, who's famous around the world for growing and trying unbelievable amounts of heritage and ancient grains, John Shirk surprised me a couple of years ago when he said, as I look back over all of this, for the amount of time and energy in for what you get out, Mm -hmm. it's got to be upland rice that we focus on if that's really what we want to feed ourselves. It's just easier to grow and you get more out. And so that's where he's focusing a lot of his energy. And so that's what got us excited. Now, the problem is there are thousands of varieties, hundreds of thousands. So the question becomes, which ones work for us? If you can find historical records where you are, and there aren't very many because it wasn't really a favored crop, right. then you can look back and find out what you know, other farmers at trial and error had found in your area and found to be successful. If you can't do that, the next best thing is to do what you're doing, is to put together in one package all the different kinds of rice you can find, upland rice, Mm-hmm. And just plant them out, boom, in your yard in one fell swoop and see what works. And the varieties that jump up and shout to you, that produce a lot of seed, that look good, maybe they've got a color you love, whatever it is, those are the ones you save the seeds from and plant again. And within two or three years, you'll find your varieties that work. Nice. And upland rice don't need to be in patties, don't be in, need to be in water. Nope. You can just, in fact, what I'm trying to do is find the varieties that don't need water at all. Yeah. In my climate in Cornville. I'm going to try to grow them. I've been starting to try to grow them through the winter there where we get more natural moisture mm-hmm. and just see which ones work. And so this is the key to this sort of thing is that why baby them? Yeah. If you've got thousands of varieties to try, maybe one of them will work in your yard without any work at all, any water, any extra. And so those are the ones that we're looking for. Nice. Nice, nice. All right. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about that next month. Tonight, though, we're going to jump in on companion planting. Companion planting is like carrots love tomatoes and putting things together to make a healthier garden. In fact, interestingly, Lisa Ziegler was on the podcast a couple of three, four months ago, and she suggested that 20% of our garden should be pollinators. That's companion planting, is it not? It is. So, you know, the concept is wide. Yeah. Put them all together and see what works and try to duplicate the patterns that seem to produce well for you. That would be Mm -hmm. a way of thinking about it. Having pollinators, they become companion plants in a little bit different way in that they're calling in insects. Right. And those insects could be eating insects or keeping bugs that could cause harm to your plants because there's more flowers, there's more diversity, there's more things that could eat them. And so I think there's a bit of that. 
There's a whole other side to companion planting that happens in the soil, however, and a lot of people think about it that way. Oh, yes. Tell me about that. Well, the opposite of that would be, we learn about this if you get into native plants. There are native plants that are what they call allopathic. They secrete mm. hormones and other, who knows, I'm not a scientist on, I haven't studied soil scientists that much, but they, they change the soil so that other plants can't grow around them. It's a huge advantage, ecological advantage. And so maybe the most famous of those are redwoods and cedars. Mm. I used to get calls from people who say, oh, I got this big cedar tree growing in my yard and there's nothing growing under it. I want to plant wildflowers. And I would go, what, or pollinators or whatever. And it's, well, I could sell you seeds to do that, but they just won't work. And it's because the soil there just will not, it doesn't support that kind of life because it's been changed. When I was at the University of Montana, we had knapweed invaded, mm. which is like a purple flowered Russian thistle kind of bachelor button plant, very aggressive. And left alone in fields in Montana, areas that have been disturbed, it ends up being 100% napweed. It kills everything else. There's no grass, there's no nothing. And how does it do that? It's allopathic. It changes the soil. So now the opposite of that would be plants that secrete things and set up conditions so other plants can grow around it and thrive in it. And that happens in two ways. There seems to be some plants that other plants just like to be around and, mm -hmm. and planted together, two plants will do better than if they're separated. And you yeah. can see these sorts of things. And I think that's the basis of that age old book. It's been around for what, at least 40 years is carrots, love tomatoes mm -hmm. is observations for those sorts of things. The other way though, that I've noticed is that some plants do really well or grow in your garden. And what they're doing is changing the soil and getting things ready for the next year. And so that's ah. a little bit harder for us to understand, but you see that in nature a lot with wildfires, flowers, and we, right. and, and we label those plants that come in first that help get things ready, pioneer species. They deep mine minerals, they break up soil, they fix nitrogen, they do things like that. And so their companions will come down the road. And so I'm just kind of giving you a conceptual framework to think about companion planting because there's lots of different ways to get into this, I think. Got it. Tammy has an interesting question. Is companion planting for annuals? Are guilds more for perennials? Well, that's a really great question. I right? think it's just guilds are a way of explaining companion plants for perennials. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it's about. You find things that work together. That's a real, I never used the word guild for companion planting, but that's exactly what's going on. Right. In fact, Kristen Parsons has a guild class that she gives. I think we're going to be bringing it to what we offer. And why really? don't you, you want to just share what a guild is, Bill? Well, you're, you probably actually taught more permaculture courses or been in more than I have, but it's basically the idea that I think it started in Tasmania with Bill Mollison, what they noticed is that if they could get a taller tree that would start to form a canopy, that underneath it, that would change the climate enough. It would provide, it wouldn't be hot and dry baked soil. So in there, other plants could grow. And also there was a physical space. In other words, the tree was tall and then 
in a mid-level, you could have some sorts of shrubs going. Mm -hmm. And then under those, in and around and under those, you could even do ground covers that would take advantage. And finding a mix of those to take a maximum advantage of a a space, I I think, precipitated this idea of a guild. Once you find it, it's like, whoa, it's this magical mix of things that is exponentially better than the sum of its parts, right? Yeah. Synergy. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that you mentioned ground covers, and one of the things that I found in Phoenix when I lived there about, I don't know, six, eight years ago, was that if we covered the ground with some kind of green growing cover, mm-hmm. which can also often be a nitrogen fixer. So cowpeas is one of the things we grow in Phoenix. It fixes nitrogen out of the soil and out of the air. Uh, first of all, in the summertime, when they love to grow, they shade the soil and drop the st- soil temperature up to 50 degrees. That's a difference between your plants making it and not. Right. But then when the plant, when the cowpeas die back in the wintertime, that's just our mulch for the next year. And it helps build healthy soil. And it's got a little bit of a nitrogen kick to it. That, that story is always amazing to me. I mean, if you were a builder... If you're a construction guy and your job was to make your soil 50 degrees cooler, how do you do that without a huge expense? I mean, and plants just do it and they do it well and they do it for you. And then they give you the cow peas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's just amazing. I was on a FaceTime call with Janice today. She was showing me the, her backyard and she did an experiment where she planted cow peas and sweet potatoes on one half of her backyard and not on the other half of her backyard five, four years, five years ago. And the half of the backyard that was covered is thriving. The trees are eight feet tall. They're doing well. The half of the backyard that wasn't covered with that stuff She's had to replace trees. They're just, they're struggling along. It was, it was literally like a forest and a desert looking at it in her picture. So, wow. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it shows what, you know, that you can have an effect. And all of this is based on observations. Mm, right. So that's what, you know, you're not going to find probably, I mean, I've been looking my whole career for the companion plant expert the PhD in companion planning, you, you go and to get your seven-year degree and then you're all about it. Yeah. It, it just doesn't seem to exist. What there are, are gardeners and farmers and horticulturists in every area probably mm-hmm. that have seen enough and heard enough stories to teach you how to begin to maximize, find these guilds. And, and give you some creative ideas about how you can create your own in your own yard. And, and for me, that's what makes it so exciting. Yeah. It opens up the possibility for you to be the expert. Yeah. And so there's nothing more fun than that, is you, you having your own adventure and, and conquering your own things. Well, and I've said for years, it's, it's one great big grand experiment. Yeah. Well, Early- you hear... Yeah, you hear all experienced gardeners say that. Yeah. 
new yeah. new ones are reading encyclopedias and memorizing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, go out and plant stuff. Go out and plant stuff. So Carrots Love Tomatoes was put out in 1998. Okay. So that's what, 22 years ago? By Louise Riot, R-I-O-T-T-E. Here's, here's the, the quick description. Plant parsley and asparagus together and you'll have more of each. But keep broccoli and tomato plants far apart if you want them to thrive. Utilize the natural properties of plants to nourish the soil, repel pests, and secure a greater harvest. With plenty of insightful advice and suggestions for planting schemes, Louise will inspire you to turn your garden into a naturally nurturing ecosystem. There you go. That's pretty much what we've been talking about for the past 22 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Just trying. And so I think my best example was noticing in the Mesquite Bosquet, where I lived in Cornville, mm -hmm. every spring, early January, starting into February, underneath the mesquite trees. So a bosquet is a, a little forest. It's yeah. And it's where the mesquites have a canopy. And, and there's not a lot growing under there, especially in the summertime, but in the spring, it gets intensely green. And there is some grass, but the primary thing that's growing there mm -hmm. is a mustard. It's a wild mustard. Really? And I've, yeah, I have friends. It, it comes up. It has leaves that are serrated more so than, say, arugula. But it's a mustard. And the mustards you can eat, especially when they're really, really young and tender. Mm -hmm. and so my dear friend, William Eaton, who's a musician, it's just for years, kept picking at telling me we've got to eat more of this stuff for our health, for everything, right? And so I call it William Eaton mustard in his honor, at least in my neighborhood. <laughs> and, and I like to pick it and eat it. However, it is quite bitter. And then it's only good for a certain amount of time because you can't get it young anymore. Well, in mimicking that, I planted another mustard underneath my mesquite trees in my yard. And that was oh. arugula. And I did this about 12 years ago. And bingo, it loved that for some reason, there's, a, there's some sort of relationship between mesquite and the canopy and the soil, whatever it is, between mustards and mesquites. And so now I have my own. And so it's been reseeding itself and feeding my family for 12 years without mm -hmm. ever having to plant it again. It's like a wild part of my yard. And wow. so that's companion planting. And that I learned from looking at, around in my yard and tweaking it just a little bit. And so that's just another idea of something you can do. Well, and the observation is the really the number one premise of permaculture. Yeah. And you just observed what was growing and you mimicked it. Yeah. Tweaked it a little. I, I yeah. put my, my frugal is the number two most dense food we can grow. They really? Say, yeah. Number one is kale. Mm -hmm. Number two is arugula. And so I have friends still in my neighborhood that go, I can't grow kale. It just won't grow. We get aphids. It gets too hot for most of the year. Sometimes if you're lucky, I know people, especially under a cover, get a, a crop in the wintertime. I gave up. I, we, we always have a little bit growing, but I've never been able to do it the way you do it, Greg, with the kale trees. And oh, yeah. they, just, they just don't work. So. 
my answer now when people say, how do you grow kale? As I say, I don't, I grow <laughs> arugula. There you go. Because it fits in and I never have to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a couple of questions here. Rentho says, I live in Phoenix. Was the ground cover you mentioned cow fees? No, it is, sorry, cow, C-O-W-P-E-A-S. It's a small bean that loves the heat. The cow pea that, that we give away at our nursery, it's a cow pea that I started growing maybe 15 years ago at the urban farm. And it just comes back year after year after year. It just, it grows wild in the yard at the urban farm now. And it loves the heat. And yeah, we give it away with our fruit tree program because it grows so prolifically. And what I've done actually now, Bill, I always used to grow all the cow peas at the urban farm. We actually have three or four people in Phoenix now that are growing cow peas for the fruit tree program, supplying the cow peas. Yeah. So, wow. See, so that it works. All this yeah. stuff we're doing works. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cow, C-O-W-P-E-A. Sam wants to know, do permaculture principles include certain kinds of companion planting? Yes. And that's really up to you. Permaculture I like to call the art and science of working with nature. So how do we work in the flow of nature rather than against nature? And it starts with observation. So Sam, what you want to do is you want to observe your space. And I highly encourage you to observe your neighborhood as well, away from your space and see what works. And if you see guilds and or companion planting that's working, mimic that absolutely mimic that. So Donald says, when to harvest summer squash seeds, Bill? Lots of times it's after the summer, <laughs> oddly enough. Mm -hmm. given, this yeah. is a, given this is a seed saving chat, how about if we talk about when to harvest them and how to process them? Right. So there are many things that you can harvest the seeds from while you eat. Oh, right. Tomatoes, peppers. I've had peppers work, things like that. However, summer squash, you have to let go two to three weeks beyond eating stage. Mm. And there are varieties that, be, that you can eat as both a summer squash and a winter squash. But most of the time, the summer squash varieties, what happens is they, they do what we call bloat. They'll, they'll blow up and get bigger. So you want to eat your zucchini, say, when they're just, we all know what the size and shape of a really great zucchini. If you let it go beyond that, it gets kind of pithy and hard and they're just mm -hmm. not as good. They start having spaces in between. Let it go beyond that. And you can tell when things are bloated, they're like two to three times the size that they are normally, and they start to turn orange, yellow and orange. Oh, yes. And that's when you would harvest your summer squash seeds. So if you're in a, a supportive environment and nothing's going to happen to it, in other words, there's, you're not going to have a coyote jump over the fence or a raccoon and steal it, 
or it's not going to rot on the ground because you have too much rain or whatever, but it just, it's sitting there day after day, week after week, leave it as long as you can leave it until the vine um, gets so brittle that it starts to break off. That would be the optimum. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, at least wait for it to get two or three times, let it cure as much as you can in the field. And then after you cut it, if it's still kind of squishy or soft, let it dry out even further. Let it go another week or two until the seeds finish forming on the inside. Then you'll get good seed. And so then you cut it open. Do you wet process them or dry process them? You can do either one. The wet process is where you would get an ice cream scoop and scoop out the whole pithy middle of the thing, put Mm -hmm. them in some sort of container with a little bit of water, probably if you've let them go a long ways and they'll ferment for a short period. Hold on one, hold on one sec. I want you to dig in a little deeper on that. But Dennis says, how do you harvest soft seeds like papaya? His have molded while, while trying to dry out. This is the wet process, right? Right. So, so explain that a little bit more deeply. Okay. Well, Cucumbers are probably used for the wet method more than squash, but it can be used for it. And the idea is to allow it to ferment for two or three or four days. And what that does is break down all that stuff that's around the seeds and your seeds will add the good seeds will actually fall to the bottom of whatever container you have. You can stir them a few times and that does help. There, there is a bread mold in there that does help to treat those seeds for seed-borne diseases. And so that's one of the advantages of doing the wet method. Mm -hmm. So that seems contradictory to get your seeds wet for a few days, but when they're first curing, it it seems to be okay. You know, what I do is I will scoop mine out and lay them out and let them dry. And then it's pretty easy physically to remove the seeds from all the chaff that's Mm -hmm. around them. And that seems to have worked really well for my squash seeds. Okay. I've I've never done papaya. (laughs) Right. Neither have I, but it makes sense. So basically you harvest the papaya seeds, put them in a glass of water. This works great for tomatoes as well. And let it ferment for two or three days. And then you do something called water winnowing them. You want to explain that, Bill? Well, in the case of papaya, you may have to wait more days. What you want to do is wait until you see it get white on the top. Mm-hmm. So you get that bread mold. There's a yeast that'll help break down all the sliminess around your seeds. And there'll be a mold that forms on top, which helps protect them. And once you start to see that, you can stir them. Good seed should fall to the bottom. And then fill whatever container you have of the rest of the way up. I usually have jars half full of water. So I'll fill them full of water then. And the good seed on the bottom with the good seed on the bottom, you can pour out all the phlegmy bad stuff off the top until you get right down to the level to where the seeds would start to come out of your jar Mm -hmm. and stop there. Don't pour your seeds down the sink and then fill it up with water again, clear to the top, let everything settle, pour everything out. And in this way, you can winnow off in the water all the chaff and other things that you don't want. And you'll end up with really clean seed and then get a strainer on your last iteration of this, pour the seeds in through the strainer, all the water, all you'll have are seeds. And then you can turn that strainer upside down on a paper towel or paper plate, or if you have 
germination paper, whatever you're using, and then let them dry out. A seed cookie. Before you package them. A seed cookie. Yeah, that tomato cookies, especially. Yeah. Sam wants to know, besides cucumbers and tomatoes, which we just talked about, what other seeds do well with the wet harvest? Tomatillos. Oh, yes. Makes sense. That's about the only way to do tomatillos. Mm. (laughs) The seeds are way smaller. And so let's see. Tomatoes, you can do peppers that way. Although Mm -hmm. I prefer now just to let them dry. And to because it's so easy to get them clean anyway. Watermelon and Mm. cantaloupes are probably the things where those are used most in industry now still. Because of the disease prevention properties that come out of the method itself. Yeah. So I'll just leave it at that. Perfect. Perfect. Dennis wants to know, this is a curious question for you, Bill. Dennis wants to know, once you figure out what type of plants you want to grow, how do you know what variety to get for your area? (laughs) Ask. (laughs) You're not going to know until, unless you can ask people who have already tried everything in all the catalogs and all the stuff that's available. And that's why I, Greg and I are such big fans of seed exchanges mm-hmm. and seed libraries, because there are people around in both of those institutions that are doing the same thing you are and have already gotten down the road further than you probably. Yeah. And in absence of that, we now have a new method for doing it. And that is get as many different varieties as you can of carrots, of beans, of whatever you're trying, mix them all up and do what we talked about at the beginning of the program with Greg's rice and just plant them all out there and see which ones make it and work Mm -hmm. best for you. And the problem in most modern gardeners' minds in doing that is that, oh, no, now I don't know what variety it is. I don't know its name. Well, you're right. We don't. However, we're seed savers, so we don't have to worry about the name to get more seed, right? Because we're saving our own seeds now. Mm -hmm. And we have an advantage. We've just answered your question. I know which one of a hundred or a thousand varieties works best in my yard because I found it. Right. And that's called land race gardening. And Joseph Lofthouse has written a book if you want to experiment with that, which is what I'm experimenting with now. Yeah. Well, the cowpea, let's go back to the cowpea that I that I acquired about 15, 20 years ago. I'm pretty sure it came from native seed search. And I'm pretty sure they called it a rear red cowpea. But when I followed back up with them this past year about it, they had no record of a rear red cowpea. So I, it's a, it's a cowpea that has just comes back year after year after year. We grow them and give them away. And the tag that goes in the bag with them says Rio red cowpea urban farm land race. There you go. You know, we're not selling them to make money. We're giving them away to get them out there if you fall into the heirloom, get into the history of our own vegetable garden, doesn't matter what level of vegetable gardening you're into and the variety name catches your ear 
and you mm-hmm. hear a story about it. Maybe it was local and uncle, it came from somebody out of the civil war. There's more of those kinds of stories and varieties of things in our country in Appalachia. But so if you dig back into that history and you start to hear and figure out these stories about where all of this diversity came from and all these mm-hmm. names of things, it's exactly the story you just told, Greg. Yeah. That's how we got everything. Somebody didn't keep a record. So I don't know what it was called, but guess what? It worked for me for 10 years. So therefore I'm passing it on. And I think it was called this. So we're changing the name a little. We've added urban farm to it, but that's how it, they, now we're gardening. Now we're creating. Now we're getting into the flow of things. Something that modern gardeners who stay up late at night in the winter and get their seed catalogs out and order their seeds every year and allow someone else to decide all those other things from them for them. That's something they all miss, right? So you want to, you want to save your own seeds. You want to get back into this flow and be, become a creator on whatever level you want and only do one thing. If you say, Oh God, that sounds overwhelming. Oh, it's not. It's exciting. Just pick one simple thing you love and learn how to do it. It's really simple. Yeah. Like cowpeas. Yeah. Like and, cowpeas. And I would, I would guess that hundreds and hundreds of pounds of cowpeas get grown every year. Yeah. In the, well, in guess the, what? Hmm. The United Nations did a study, the FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, and they're just analyzing resources on the ground in every country in the world where there needs to be food. Factor in climate change, factor in the economics. What can we do with the resources we have to feed you know, the billion more people we're going to have in the next six or eight years because of population growth still? Mm-hmm. And guess what? The number one thing was cowpeas. Really? Oh, yeah. For the amount of energy. And, and inputs they take for the amount of food they get out and the vast diversity and their ability to adapt in stuff all over the world. That was wow. one of the major things they picked to start promoting. In fact, they ended up calling it the year of the pulses. Pulses are these kinds of beans. Right. Right. But they, this cow peas or, or black eyed peas were, were like primary. Yeah. I have a big tube of cowpeas that I had harvested from the urban farm. I was going to pack them up and send them back to Phoenix for the giveaways. And I had Tammy and Lori and Jordan step up and grow them. So, yeah, well, most of us here in, in the United States are not subsistence gardeners. Right. We don't have to subsist on what we grow. But if we did, and we were looking for things, cowpeas, that upland well, rice that yeah. you're talking about. Uh, yeah. And apparently they make great flour. Oh, uh, endless. Yeah. And we, I'm going to cook some of them up and try them that way. Apparently they're really good that way too. Um, well, right. And the soups and stews and cakes and patties and things, especially in Af- West Africa. I yeah. think is where they're they're popular. Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts, Mr. McDorman? Boy, those are all. This has been wonderfully stimulating. 
for me. Right. And so I always want to thank everybody for showing up. And just remember how simple and beautiful this is. I think so much of the time in our modern lives, we're taught that it's a zero-sum game, that if we're going to get ahead, somebody else has to give up something, Yeah. that we've got to be competitive, we've got to work all the time to try to do this stuff. And what we've been talking about for the last hour is the opposite of that. Greg starts, figures out that these cowpeas grow on their own in his yard. And now he's dealing with one of the most famous new foods <laughs> worldwide. Right. right? Your, your cowpeas are going to be famous. Uh, nice. And you've got abundance to give away. Yeah. I mean, that's well, what I, happens when you get involved in this stuff. You've heard me say that the only place that lack lives is right here. Yeah. Between our ears. Yeah. Because when I look, I mean, this is one year's harvest of cowpeas at the urban farm. And it's, it's a tube. Like I said, there's probably five pounds of cowpeas in here. And the things are smaller than a pea. These are smaller. There's got to be, what, 10,000 in there, maybe 15,000 in that tube. That's the big reason I like to plant fruit trees is because you plant them once and you get fruit for decades. And it's <laughs> massive amounts of fruit. I'm drawing up my list for you. Nice. So Les says, please buy from Thrift Books not Amazon. You know what? About six months ago, Les, I found thrift books and I love them. I absolutely love them. Just go to a search engine and type in thrift books and you'll find them. He says he just ordered carrots, love tomatoes from thrift books. Great. Another really great resource I've used over the years is called bookfinder.com. Oh, okay, good. And somebody figured out how to search all of the places that sell books. Oh, yes. And they have a brand new section and a used. And there's always used books being sold by of course. bookstores and small places. Yeah. And you, so you can search the whole world for them. So I rarely buy new books anymore. Right. Bookfinder.com finds me books from little sellers all over the place. And I like that. There you go. Thanks for that tip, Les. Sharon says, here's an interesting question, and then we're going to wrap it up. Sharon says, I'm in zone four. How do I get some cow peas to try? Ooh, zone four. That's really cold. So you're, you, you got a short growing season. One okay. is goingtoseed.org. That's Joseph Lofthouse. That's an organization that's coming up and they have seeds to give away. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I was doing this, I would get Joseph Lofthouse's Grex of cow peas. Because it's got mm -hmm. huge diversity in it. That might be one thing. Also, the Experimental Farm Network is another place that's starting to put together and sell Grexes. And I would ask them for either an individual variety for really cold because they were in New Jersey. Now they're up in Minnesota or Michigan. Those guys are really great and on the trail of finding things. Those are I just wonder, two ideas. I wonder if Penn, Penn's, what's Penn's website? It's called Miss Penn's Mountain Seeds. Yes. Check with her. She's up at 10,000 foot elevation in Colorado. 8,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She would, she may have some ideas for you too. Good question. See, the, the most important questions are ones that help you in your yeah. backyard. Don't ever forget that. And don't ever feel shy about asking them. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see here. Zoom user says thrift books is fantastic. Donna says, thank you, Bill and Greg. Great chat today. Very motivating. Dennis says, thank you for your time and knowledge. It helps 
keep our insanity and love for gardening. Yes. And Tris says, thank you. Thank you, Bill McDormand. We will see you guys next month where we're talking about Grexes. Oh, it's going to be fun. All right. right. Take care, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.